0: I for sure would have made a deal with the devil. Like if you said, look, you're going to make $65,000 a year doing comedy for the rest of your life, but the only caveat is you'll never get a raise. You'll just make $65,000 a year for the rest of your life, but you, you'll be doing it telling jokes or writing jokes or maybe you'll just be writing for a greeting card company or something like that but whatever you're not going to do construction and you'll do something creative for $65,000 a year for the rest of your life and you'll never get a raise at any point from high school to age 31 I would go give me that goddamn paper I'm signing it right now I'll sign it as fast as I can sign it
1: so you're giving away your it's not just I'm signing that paper It's I'll take the $65,000, and when I'm dead, I'm going to hell. No. What the hell is that?
0: What would you say you do here? It's Stone's Weekly Dose.
1: Because I'm kind of an idiot. I'm a dumb guy.
2: Brian, you don't have to keep trying so hard to impress me. I already really like you.
1: Your midweek download destination.
3: I told you about Brian. I told you. Come on, man. Brian was just making a joke. I'm so lucky to have met you, Brian. You're such an amazing guy. It's Stone's Weekly Dose. change for
1: And note to self, don't die. Welcome in, everybody. This is the supposed for-profit venture known as the Stone On Air podcast, delivered in a perfect world every single week. It's close to every single week. It's the not-so-weekly, the weekly Your midweek download destination. Today is the weekly dose for July 10th, 2019. And it's a sad day. It's a sad, sad, sad day. Sad state of affairs very depressing time for me because I sit here and I hold in my hands the glossy page and covered and very very well put together chatter magazine produced by the Chattanooga Times free press I believe right yeah yeah, yeah. TFP does this I bag on the TFP every now and again, but I don't really mean it. I think it's a great newspaper, and they have a lot of uh, great little offshoots they do to supplement where they're losing subscriptions every single second of every single day, even though I do believe... They do very, very good um, detailed reporting and uh, very good stories. I think it's a very good newspaper. I also think most people don't give two bleeps about a newspaper anymore, so I think they do a good job of supplementing that lost revenue. But I'm holding the chatter magazine in my hand. July 2019, 20 under 40. And I have been highlighting people in the 20 under 40 uh, annually on this podcast for the last couple of years anyway. And I'm not going to act like it's some kind of deep-rooted tradition that I've been doing for years and years and years. But I have been paying attention to this countdown, or not countdown, this uh, this display, this highlight, this um, this reoccurring uh, yearly uh, thing that Chattanooga Times Free Press and Chatter Magazine does. And I'm officially... Disqualified. (laughs) I am officially disqualified. I am 39 years old this past April. They put this together at press time probably in June, I guess. They probably make their decisions in mid spring or so, meaning when they decide to do this, I will likely have already hit my 40th birthday next year. And even if I was only hitting my 25th birthday next year, or 35th, or 30th, or whatever. Um, I do not have, nor will I ever have, or have I ever had in the past, the qualifications to be in this uh, in this rag. But I um, I think it's fun. I think it's a little bit uh, kind of cartoonish the way they've done it the last few years with superheroes, and this year it's a, um, a Game of Thrones theme. But that's fine. And here's where I really know that I completely and totally have zero chance to ever be uh, featured in this over the last 20 years. is uh, Or, I mean, well, there's a lot of reasons why the last 20 years, but I mean, like, the last year. There's not one person in this publication that I've ever even heard of, let alone actually know. And most years, there's somebody in there that I know or I have business relationships with or, um, you know, just passing friendships with or acquaintances or whatever. None of that's a thing. So, Chatter Chatter, uh, Magazine... 20 under 40 has officially gone uh, by the wayside for me. I am now disqualified. All right, let's see. Let's take a look at this week's show. I'm gonna keep this one simple to two main topics. One that uh, means a little bit to me and it kind of came together in the last day and a half. It is interesting how um, how things happen when I'm trying to put these shows together. I spend the week leaving notes to self on my phone, and trying to come up with the best ideas and subjects to um, to to make a roughly hour show out of and I was listening to Adam Carolla on with Dan Lebitard from ESPN uh, radio great great radio show and he's now doing a podcast and they were talking and so that's Adam Carolla on the front and um and that kind of ties back in with where I eventually ended up going because of the death of Ross Perot on Tuesday. Now, when I started this idea of this radio, or excuse me, podcast, not radio show, podcast over the course of the weekend, Ross Perot was alive and well and hadn't thought about the guy in a decade and a half. Well, it totally shifted, and then it all came back around. This was uh, a little bit further commentary on what Adam Carolla was talking to uh, Dan Lebitard on his uh, podcast here recently. This is about uh, a little less than a minute long.
0: But no, the point is, is, you're giving away your soul because you're not betting on
1: yourself.
0: That process is giving away your soul. The punishment for that is you'll never have the kind of success you were ever thinking of because you cut a deal. And that deal was you're going to go into class and you're going to be guaranteed a C plus And and you sign the deal and you leave the class. But what you're saying is, is you're never going to get an A. And you are never going to get a B, and you are never going to get an A plus And you've you've decided to do that. You've hedged your bet on yourself.
1: And I think a lot of us are guilty of that. I I agree with what, what he was saying. If if you told me once upon a time I could get sixty five grand and just be on the radio for the rest of my life, I'd still do that now. By the way, but uh, you know you are limiting yourself. Of course, you can't do this lofty goal over here if you don't allow yourself to do it. And then when I learned of ross perot's death and started looking at his career more and and reflecting remembering how he uh lived his life and the way he made his money and the way that he uh he changed the world in a lot of ways i thought wow this all came back together because originally i was going to talk about here's my original show sheet over here it says corolla open get into show topics trump book lie WWTA I'm going to get to that eventually Uh, USWNT flag fakes Stones throw small talk I'm throwing most of that out Uh, One comment on The the women's team Winning the World Cup It was incredible, I loved it, fantastic I didn't watch it, I like soccer these days But I still didn't watch it, it came on in the morning I was asleep Um, But this whole I'm pissed off because a flag Hit the ground thing I was a week late I didn't realize that was going to be a, a subject matter uh this week now. Uh enough of your fake outrage, please, everybody out there. Uh all the numb nuts, all the wannabes, all the fakes, all the frauds. Enough of your fake ass outrage. Um, the women are incredible. That was a great team, a great run. And uh, let's find any reason to get all pissed off about something because of flag, a piece of nylon from China made in a sweat. You get you were if you were here last week. You know where I'm going, uh, coming from. So yeah, that's all gone, and Ross Perot died in uh, uh, on on Tuesday, the the ninth. So let me just spell out the rest of the show here real quick. It's just two subjects. In the second segment, and what will ultimately be the final segment of the show, I've been holding on this to this one for a while. I saw someone post it on one of my social medias, and I thought this was as good a time as any to go ahead and do it. It's fluff. It's throwaway. It doesn't mean anything. It might bore you. If you want to check out early, then go ahead. If you don't want to listen to this show ever again, I mean, that's fine, too. I have a feeling if you're here, you'll at least find a little bit of interest in it. The question is, from the most one of the more uh, extensive Google search your searches you're going to find, why do people hate Nickelback? Yes, the band Nickelback. I'm going to spend some time on that. In the second and ultimately final segment of the show. And for the rest of the way out here, I am going to talk about Ross Perot, the Texas billionaire, self made billionaire, who ran for president in 1992, almost close to a legitimate uh, run for office, you know, ish. He ran again in 96, but by the time 96 rolled around, he was a caricature of himself. And uh, it just kind of turned into, uh, if nothing, uh, if nothing else, because the media and social me- uh, social media, not then, but like the Saturday Night Lives, the um, the, uh, the the satire magazines, the satire shows, pretty much spun Ross Perot as a big goof. But early on, early on, in '91, '92, and leading into that presidential race. He made more noise. He's one of the most historical presidential nominees in the history of what was once, again, if you've listened recently, I don't care anymore, but once something that I was fascinated by and held very sacred. And I was just old enough at the time to kind of understand what was going on. He was Don Trump before there ever was a Don Trump in the sense that, hold on, slow down, I know. (laughs) A couple of you might be like, wait, slow down, bro. Slow your roll. No, in the sense that he was the guy that was the outsider. He was the guy that came in and shook things up. He was the guy who came in and rocked the boat of the two-party system. That hadn't happened to this national degree in a long time or maybe hell ever. And so before there ever was a Don Trump, there was a Ross Perot. And he uh, he was not a bombastic demagogue. He was not maniacal. He was not a disgusting human being like the president of the United States is right now. He was practical. He was pragmatic, and he spoke to specifics. And somehow the media still spin to, figured out a way to spin around what he, what he was saying and try to confuse him and the message. When he's the only guy in my, you know, my lifetime and in my recollection of history who actually came out and talked real numbers, talked real life, and it was it was a it was a fun time. Eighteen point six, I think it was percent of the national vote. Went to Ross Perot. That is that is staggering, but that was also 17 years ago, and this country has trouble keeping track of 17 minutes ago. Um, I just I did think it was just really cool how putting together the Adam Carolla conversation about don't limit yourself, keep working, keep going as hard as you can, make your own you know best life, great life, do what you can, do not settle. Well, that's the same things that Ross Perot has been saying and doing and successfully showing it's possible his entire life. So I've got some audio from him from the early 90s before he was a presidential candidate. So let's just do some read to you radio, here, real quick. Henry Ross Perot, June 27, 1930 was when he was born. He passed away on Tuesday at the age of 89. He was an American business magnate, a billionaire, a philanthropist, and politician. He was the founder and former chief executive officer of electronic data systems and Perot Systems. Born in Texarkana, Texas, Perot became a salesman for IBM after serving in the United States Navy. In 1962, he founded Electronic Data Systems, a data processing service company. In 1984, General Motors bought a controlling interest in the company for 2.4 billion dollars. That was in 1984. Perot established Perot Systems in 1988 and was an angel investor for Next, N-E-X-T a company, uh, a computer company founded by Steve Jobs after he initially left Apple. And in 1992, Perot announced his intention to run for president and advocated a balanced budget an end to the outsourcing of jobs and the enactment of the electronic direct democracy. That's something I'll spend some more time on another time. That's a a very uh, loaded uh, situation where he was looking very much into the future whenever it was like, what are you talking about? Computers, you know, artificial intelligence. Perot was way ahead of his time. After he left the Navy in 1957, Perot became a salesman for IBM. He quickly became a top employee and tried to pitch his ideas to supervisors, who largely ignored him. He left IBM in 1962 to found EDS, Electronic Data Systems, in Dallas, Texas, and courted large corporations for his data processing services. Perot was was refused 77 times before he was given his first contract. EDS received lucrative contracts from the U.S. government in the 1960s, computerizing Medicare records. In 1974, Perot gained some press attention for being the biggest individual loser ever on the New York Stock Exchange when he and his EDS shares dropped $450 million in value in a single day in 1970. He won't speak to that specifically, but he will speak to that in some of these audio clips about how if you're going to make it, if you're going to kill it, if you're going to make the money you're trying to do, if you're going to make the the difference you're trying to make, you're going to get your ass kicked sometimes. And you don't just pull out because of of a of, of, of one bad day. Well, a $450 million loss in one day. He never moved. In 1984, Perot bought a very early copy of the Magna Carta, which is basically the constitution of uh, of England, for the most part, from 800 years ago. And in 1988, he founded uh, Perot Systems Corporation in Plano, Texas, after he had uh, sold off his shares of his original company. And in 2009, Perot Systems was acquired by Dell for $3.9 billion he ran for president he got 39 uh, percent of the early Gallup poll-, poll votes in early 1992. He spent 12.3 million dollars of his own money. He would buy blocks of time on TV to uh, to basically effectively do his campaigning rather than go all over the country he would just sit there for 30 minutes on NBC ABC and uh, uh, CBS and wherever else. And just do thirty minutes of talking shop, talking money, talking deficit, talking dollars, talking cents. A lot of people really, really identified with it. Uh, one of his Friday night broadcasts on uh, the uh, on on one of the major networks got ten point five million viewers. Now, talking about the votes that he got in uh, in nineteen ninety two, he got eighteen point six percent of the popular vote, and some people wonder, did this did this derail? Did this mess up the the uh, overall election for George H.W.? Did it help Clinton? Well, in the end, it doesn't look like it did really either. 20% of his votes came from self-described liberals. 27% of the votes in 1992 were self-described conservatives. And 53% coming from self-described moderates. Economically speaking, though, the majority of Perot voters, 57% were middle class, earning between 15 and $49,000 annually. And uh, upon exit polls, it shows that 38% of the vote that went to Ross Perot would have gone to Bush, and 38% of the vote would have gone to Clinton. Does all that mean a whole lot? I don't know. But uh, really a, a a fun, fascinating time back in 1992. I was 12 years old, just starting to really realize the real world around me. I have a handful of clips here. Let me get my uh, rundown sheet and this is Ross Pro, just talking about what is his company he founded back in the 60's called EDS.
4: Well EDS is a computer services company. Uh, it, we created a whole new segment of the computer industry where you go into large companies, tell them in advance uh, what they're going to get, what it's going to cost, how long it'll take to build it and then operate it for 10 years on a predetermined price. Uh, which has a great appeal for companies over just uh, sort of uh, finding out each year what your budget for computers is. And uh, that was a great adventure.
1: To not really know much about it, to just my first thoughts is instead of, you remember when you go to the doctor when you were real young and there was a thousand million looking uh, color coded uh, files on the wall and they'd go pull that off the wall and then pull your file out? Well, yeah, it was digitizing everything. It was putting everything into a, uh, into a computer because computers barely existed at the time. And that's from my understanding of what uh, electronic data systems was. This is Ross Perot when he loves talking about uh, or talking about his success or lack of, depending on how you want to look at it, because it didn't start off so well when he talks to young people.
4: It's fun to talk to young entrepreneurs. Uh, and it's fun to talk to young people, but see, they feel like they uh, you go to Harvard Business School. All they want to know is, how did you make all that money? And how did you get the idea to start? Now, they assume I brought in McKinsey Company, had five-year plans. None of that's the way things really happen. And the story of my net worth, I never had a goal to make a lot of money, never have cared about money. My idea was considered so bad when I started that nobody else would touch it. And I was stuck with the whole thing. And I had to bootstrap it. And fortunately, it worked. But I would love to have had an investor. But everybody that looked at it said, son, you're going against IBM. You'll never make it.
1: And this is an interview with C-SPAN before uh, any announcement of running for president. Now, the rumors were out there. But the actual announcement had not been uh, made. So after all that, he's feeling, you know, I don't know. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? If it was me, I would have cut and run because that's just kind of the way I'm wired. Well, he didn't. And his, the first company that signed with him, you might have heard of. The last, the last name of the guy who started it is Lay.
4: Then a few months into the game, uh, in my first account that I signed. Now, here is life in the trenches. Frito-Lay, first big customer. IBM got Republic Bank and Arthur Young to come out with IBM and explain to Herman Lay, the founder of Frito-Lay, that if he did business with me, it would bankrupt him. This was Just this strange little company with this guy with a strange idea. And when they left, Mr. Lay, who started out cooking potato chips in his kitchen and delivering them in his truck, looked around the room and smiled. He says, you know, these boys must have something. Or All these big companies wouldn't be overreacting this way.
1: Now, obviously, this was a different time; it was a different era. There was different attitudes. There was different culture. There was different, uh, virtually everything. Um, but it is—it's uh, pretty wild to think about how you're—you're you're being someone's trying to tell you you're gonna—you're gonna be ruined if you do this. But I don't know. I got a hunch. I'm gonna go with it. And it's very interesting how everything turned out very shortly after Ross Perot and Henry Lay from Frito-Lay Potato Chips decided to continue working together.
4: Now, the world's a funny place. I later became IBM's largest customer. Arthur Young was my accounting firm. And when Republic Bank failed, I had the interesting uh, assignment for about a 30 to 45 day period guaranteeing the transaction that was pending so that nothing would be interrupted in the process. You live long enough, the world comes full circle, I guess.
1: So the company that wanted to try to bury him ended up, he became their biggest customer. One of the companies that was also trying to badmouth him became uh, an accounting firm with him. And the financial company that was in bed with the other two, he ended up saving with the backing of his own capital, his own cash, his own money, because he knew in the long run it would work best for him. Uh, He was asked, do you have disappointments? Do you have failures? And how do you stay motivated after all these years?
4: Oh, you have a lot of disappointments. See, everybody thinks life is carefully planned. Life is a series of, in my case, fortunate accidents. I think it's really important for everyone to understand that if you're going to get in the ring and do things, you're going to get your nose broken. You're going to have scars all over your body. And the only way to avoid that is to stay on the sidelines. That just goes with it. Oh, sure, there are a lot of frustrations, a lot of disappointments.
1: And you'll hear that from many, many entrepreneurs. I know sometimes I'm a little bit of a negative Nancy, Debbie Downer, if you will, about making money and how difficult it can be, but I guess you have to work at it to make it happen. There's a lot of examples of that over the history of our country. So uh, he continues to be asked, do you ever feel greedy? because you have so much money. Like at that time, you have more money than almost anybody. And is greed dangerous? Will greed be a detriment to this country?
4: Greed is terribly destructive. We are born selfish. Any psychiatrist will tell you that. We have to be taught to care and share. And so greed is destructive to civilized society. You're born sort of as a one-person unit, hunter-survivalist, and then when you are in a community surrounded by other people, you have to share and care to make society work. So greedy people are destructive. The junk, You just go through the junk bond era. That was a very destructive thing in our country. A lot of damage.
1: And there absolutely is a difference between uh, accumulating wealth. Uh, there's a difference between greed and and piling up as much money for your security as you can. And there's also that very good point that Everything we do after we're infants and born is born is learned behavior. You're not born a Christian, you're not born a millionaire, you're not born any kind of ideological stance. You are born with the just natural instincts to try to stay alive if that's all you were given and be selfish. That's what you that's that's the way we all come out of the womb as. But you learn sympathy and empathy, and uh, and caring, and sharing, and the understanding of, uh, of what makes a, a better union, and a better communion, and a better place to live, and some people get taught well, and some people get taught poorly, and some people don't give a shit what they're taught about, uh, they just do whatever they're going to do anyway, which is, you know, a, a whole nother topic for another day. This is from probably mid-1992. He was officially a candidate for president of the United States. He was on with Face the Nation. This is about a minute and a half
4: long. I believe that there is so much waste around here. And again, every time you get into see, I'm the only guy that talks numbers. Mm-hmm. I love this. Nobody else will even talk about it. It's like, I've said it's like a crazy ant in the basement. Everybody knows she's there, but nobody talks about her. I'm talking about it. Then I can talk, you know, with endless numbers about it. And then when I finished, typically the establishment press said, he didn't tell us enough. I'd just break up. Nobody else said anything, and I haven't said enough. Let me just talk in general terms today, since no matter how many numbers I give the press right now, it doesn't satisfy them. Number one, we cannot spend our children's money. We are looking on the edge of a revolution of young people who are starting to realize that we, our generation, have put them $4 trillion in debt, and they don't like it, and they shouldn't. Don't we love our children as much as our parents loved us? Sure we do. We cannot spend their money. Now then, that's the easy decision. The hard decision is how do you fix it? You've got to have, instead of a deteriorating job base in the economy, which is what the last 12 years have given us, we've got to have, first, you've got to stop the the decline, stabilize it, turn it into a growing job base, growing industrial base. The only way to do that is to make the finest products in the world. Now, that's something I know a lot about. We've got to put everybody that's breathing back to work and a good solid job then you've got a growing tax base but in the meantime you've got to have a real Graham Rudman that stops the deficit spending so you don't lose any more financial blood <clears throat> then with a the growing tax base you pay off four trillion dollars and we leave the American dream to our children
1: what an amazing idea right what an amazing thought don't spend all your money don't borrow more money than you can pay back huh what an Interesting concept that the majority of Americans can't get under control and uh, the federal government certainly uh, hasn't been able to uh, in any kind of form or fashion. That was 1992, talking about a $4 trillion debt. Of course, it's at what, 22 and a half now? Goes up by maybe uh, a half billion a day? Something like that? I don't know. Here's what I say on Twitter all the time. Nobody cares about the federal deficit. Nobody. So when you see people use that as talking points, you know they're liars, because nobody cares about that. Two more clips, and then we're gonna talk about how bad Nickelback sucks. Uh, let's see. So this was one of the uh, clip from one of his infomercials that he did. So instead of campaigning all over the country, because I mean he had a lot of money, but he didn't have the kind of money that super PACs could put together necessarily. If he didn't want to bankrupt himself. So he just bought portions of time on TV, and this is a clip from one of those.
4: The 18 to 24-year-old men in this country back in 1980, 18% of them made less than 12000 a year. In 1990, it's up to 40%. With the women in 1980, 29% made less than 12000 a year. Today, 48% make less than 12,000 a year. Keep in mind, the value of the dollar is going down. The number of people making less than $12,000 is going up. I don't want to bore you with this statement, but trickle down didn't trickle. It just didn't work. We have 19th century capitalism in this country. Our successful international competitors are practicing modern day capitalism. We need to practice 21st century capitalism. We need an intelligent, supportive relationship between government and business. We need long-term thinking. We need to target the industries of the future and make sure they are here and the words made in the USA are written across them. We need to have the most rapidly growing small business society in the world because we can create more jobs more quickly there. Now he didn't All of this can be done.
1: My bad. He didn't spend a lot of time on a lot of social issues. I do know that he was pro-gun. He did not want any gun rights taken away. This is a moderate... A very, in, very intelligent, very uh, wherewithal kind of businessman that said these numbers are not working anymore. All right, everybody, will you just listen to some common sense? That's maybe not so common, but I'll put it out there for you to listen to. He was Don Trump before there was Don Trump. He was saying, I'm the guy that's saying all the things that nobody else will out loud, except he wasn't caught on tape talking about grabbing women by the you-know-what, and he wasn't a maniacal demagogue and a disgustingly awful human being. Ross Perot was one of the good guys. Ross Perot did amazing things in his life, and he spelled out the simplicities of American economics that uh, that we just refuse to understand how easy they are, and he was one of the bold types that said trickle down, da- trickle down, excuse me, economics is bullshit. He said it before anybody else had the you know what's to do it because he saw it on paper, on charts, on graphs that it was not a thing. After the ridiculousness that was the 1980s, and on our way out, might as well at least make fun of the guy a little bit because nobody who matters doesn't get spoofed and made fun of one of dana carvey's best impersonations from
2: saturday night live business proposition pure and simple same thing if you elect me president now see here president bush gets now right president bush gets two hundred thousand dollars a year forget it if i'm president we get zero percent growth you don't pay me nothing one percent growth hell a chimpanzee could run this country and get one percent growth so you don't pay me dime one got my own plane don't need air force one State dinners, I pay, it's nothing to me, sand off a beach. Now, don't worry about old Ross Perot. I got $3 billion back at home. Now, here's the deal. Here's what I'm trying to say. 3% growth in our economy, $120 billion growth in our GMP, I get a $1 billion. Now, think about it. That's a bargain. You're up $119 billion. I'm telling you, 2.99% growth, I don't see a penny, not one red cent. But don't feel sorry for me. I got 3000000000 billion. I'm going to be fine. Now, this here's a business proposition. Now, see, 4% growth, you pay me $20 billion. The way I see it, you're ahead $140 billion, see? Now, this ain't no golden parachute. This isn't the president of GM giving himself a big bonus when the company's losing money, sending jobs to Mexico. I get my money if and when you will get yours. Now, 5% growth, I get $50 billion. Everybody's happy, see? Uh, see, that's it. It's so all right it. there, just laid out, let's on the table. You can take it or you can leave it. Frankly, I don't care. I'm gonna do fine. I got $3 billion sitting in the bank. <laughs> I got $3 billion sitting in the bank.
1: And then there was the whole, can I finish?
2: Can I finish? Can I finish?
1: Because they got into a, a back and forth on Larry King uh, Live with Al Gore, which I watched about half of it today. I didn't think there was any reason to go back uh, down that road. But yeah, before there was ever this outsider, the one who talks like we all want to say out loud, but we're not brave enough to do, uh, except that this is actual real-life issues. This is real-life things. This isn't about some Mexican who might hop the border and come kill you or, you know, some kind of overly dramatic demagogue kind of thing. This is real-life stuff. This is stop spending all your money, guys and gals. This is, hey, we can't keep destroying our economy by having an a, a, an out-of-control deficit, which we can and have for, what is that, almost damn near 30 years now. Ross Perot, dead at the age of 89 and man, what an incredible human being this guy uh, was And I already knew that But I hadn't thought about it in 25 years So let's switch gears to something that doesn't matter whatsoever Let's talk about why everybody hates Nickelback How about that? We'll do it next Stone on Air will be right back He's cool Stoneonair.com Why do
3: people hate Nickelback so much? While the Canadian rock band was pretty successful early on, the band has received a bunch of negative criticism from the media and the fans of the genre. Well, a student named Sali Antonin at the University of Eastern Finland decided to do a study to figure out why Nickelback is hated so much. According to his findings, critiques of the band became harsher as they became more popular. Antonin said it became a phenomenon where the journalists were using the same reasons to bash them and almost making an art out of ridiculing them. Nickelback is too much of everything to be enough of something and that they follow genre expectations too well which is seen as empty imitation, but also not well enough, which is read as commercial tactics and as a lack of a stable and sincere identity.
0: So There's a rock band. I can't stand them. You know, some people like them, I just, I do not care for them. There's no disrespect to anyone that likes this band, but they suck. Their hits include uh, Photograph, You Remind Me, Yes, Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick are a pretty decent band. Uh-huh.
1: Welcome back to the show from a somewhat—I don't know—I guess you could call it serious topic—with the death of a former American nominee, uh, nominee for president, and businessman and entrepreneur and philanthropist and all that. To uh, why does everybody think this band sucks? I'm not saying I don't agree. I'm just wondering out loud, and I have for a while. Why does everybody think? Nickelback sucks. And it might not be untrue. I'm just not sure exactly why. This is their first big hit. Leader of Men came out, and I believe it was about 1999. If you go to Google right now and you put in, Why do people hate Nickelback? You will get pages and pages and pages of responses or top searches from NPR, which I'll read a little bit here in a minute. Why do people hate Nickelback so much? blogjournal.com why does everyone hate Nickelback bbc.uk there's a study on why people really hate Nickelback from digital music news why do people hate Nickelback research traces it back to one event the Nickelback phenomenon explaining the world's most hated band from the telegraph.co from mental floss a scientific explanation for why everyone hates Nickelback from vh1.com news Why do people hate Nickelback so much? From Golf Digest, of all places, Raptors Center doesn't get why Canada hates Nickelback. From UsMagazine.com, Research Study explains why people hate Nickelback so much. And from YouTube, Why Do People Hate Nickelback? All right, so um, why this segment? Why do this? Um, I guess always the answer to that question of why is why not. And there's a lot of really crappy bands in this world. There's a lot of simplistic, empty, soulless, dense, boring, um, just meaningless music from all genres Every single year, every single generation, every single decade, over and over and over again, why has this band Nickelback become such enemy number one amongst uh, well, really a, a mob mentality on the internet? Before I get to that, I'm gonna play one more clip I found from somebody online. I don't have the source in front of me right now, I'm talking about how Roadrunner Records. Who were independent at the time had a lot of kind of uh, harder metal acts on their on their label at, at that at that specific time, but they weren't really killing it just yet because that music hadn't really gone anywhere. It was kind of post grunge time, a very uh, identity crisis amongst uh, rock and rollers between 1998 and 2002, and then they were eventually bought out. But basically, the band Nickelback. Saved Roadrunner Records And then made them millions when they were bought out later
3: Before being acquired By Warner Brothers Records Roadrunner excelled at working with the most Influential hard rock bands in the business Signing Nickelback in 1999 forged a path for Roadrunner to expand out of their niche. Instead, this action caused hardcore fans to direct their hatred at a band they viewed as watered down and out of place. Even though Nickelback experienced commercial successes, there was still a large vocal group of these fans that blamed Nickelback for selling one of the genre's greatest labels. But it wasn't just consumers of metal that had a bad taste in their mouth when it came to Nickelback. Now keep in mind, around this time, rock fans all over the world were still reeling from the death Kurt Cobain. Any band that seemed at all opportunistic to fill the void left by the iconic rocker immediately caught the ire of grunge and hard rock fanatics. Despite all of this vitriol, Nickelback continued to sell millions of records. Their third album, Silver Side Up, was a mainstream hit, And their fourth album, The Long Road, ended up becoming certified three times platinum. It began to seem like the grimmest faces of post-grunge rock fans were becoming a thing of the past. That was until a new show on Comedy Central called Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn came on the air. The promos for the show included a quote from a comic who said, No one talks about the studies that show bad music makes people violent, but listening to Nickelback makes me want to kill Nickelback.
1: So apparently uh, that went I don't want to say viral because that wasn't a thing back then. But that became a thing, and uh, the hate for Nickelback started at that point. Now, by 1999, I had been so far removed from the grunge movement. I was starting... To shift. I mean, I was 18, 19, 20 years old, so you're very impressionable at that point, and my grunge gods, my grunge rockers were gone. I mean, it just wasn't a thing anymore. Pearl Jam was kind of still around. Alice in Chains was literally dying off. Wide, uh, excuse me, widespread panic would come eventually years later into my um, into my library of music. Uh, Soundgarden was um, was was kind of dormant. Smashing Pumpkins were dormant. Um, it, the, the grunge era was over. The grunge scene was over, and rap rock and rap metal was becoming a thing. And this kind of offshoot of of alternative rock and roll music was becoming a thing. And the uh, and and Nickelback had some damn good music. As a matter of fact, I was listening to this stuff in the late nineties. And I actually really liked a lot of it. And if this will play here in a minute, there it is. I'm going to play a few of these things. This is uh, the opener from their album, The State, in 1999. The song is called Breathe. And yeah, it's a new wave, a new thing. But I'm 20 years old at the time, or 19 and a half, and I enjoyed it. Why does everybody hate Nickelback? I'll continue to look into some of that as this segment goes along. This is a Stone On Air podcast.
4: So worthless. If I could take it all back, take it again, I wouldn't have found it. But me. I
1: found I need this. Somebody, Somebody help me. You better be there. I need this. Somebody help me breathe. I, I was just out of high school. Somebody and listening to this all the time and genuinely enjoying it because it was a new evolution, the new revolution of rock and roll music. Because at the end of the day, I'm a rock and roll kind of guy. This song is called Cowboy Hat from Nickelback back in the year 2000 on into 2001. I listened to this every single day. I mean, it doesn't sound like trash rock to me. Sorry, I don't remember the words exactly. It's been a long time. Here's the chorus. mean. Yeah, I'm not afraid to admit, I listened to Nickelback a bunch back then for a couple of years, a couple of three, four years probably. Another one I like a lot, this never one's called Old Enough. enough, never enough. I'm going to read this piece from NPR called Why Do People Hate Nickelback So Much? Here comes the chorus, short and sweet, get right to it. I can't eat, I can't sleep, and why do we always love while we're in this discussion? Sinner, can't be away. Oh, nah, 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 nah. It's good stuff. I mean, it's catchy as hell. It's catchy as hell, and it's over 20 years old. It seems like my dreams are started to die and lately. It seems. And so am I. And I i can't sleep why do we always laugh all right so that's old 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 stuff that's 20 year old music I understand this band has gotten really ridiculous over the last Uh, However many years it is Because they knew what they were doing This is Why do people hate Nickelback so much His name is Stephen Thompson From all songs considered From National Public Radio Looking beyond bands for a moment It's hard to pin down the exact cocktail Of emotions that harden to form online hatred There might be resentment fatigue from overexposure, sincere fundamental dislike, allegiance to a rival and or strong emotions tied to differences in politics, taste, identity, cultural association, and so on. And many of those are perfectly viable, valid, understandable feelings. Not all hatred falls into categories that can be just brushed off with dismissals of the haters gonna hate or the you're all just jealous variety. But hatred of ban, specifically is often about the story of ourselves that we're comfortable telling the world. A shorthand word for it would be vanity, and it often comes back to a need to either pick a popular side or cast ourselves as bold contrarians, given that contrarians are, by definition, outnumbered. The popular side pickers often find themselves contributing to a pile-on once the tides of public opinion shift towards mass opposition. That's where the nickelbacks and cold plays of the world Come in for what almost has to be, by definition, public antipathy. Gotta love these writers' big words. Once that particular tipping point has been reached, the chorus against them becomes loud enough that joining it offers little risk of blowback. So why Nickelback specifically? Many of the reasons listed above come into play. Nickelback sold millions of records in a style that's fallen out of fashion through overexposure. The genre to which the band has typically belonged, umpteenth generation, copy of a copy, post-grunge, dispensed with urgent creed-esque self-importance, I like that, has seen the scales of public opinion tip overwhelmingly against it. Specifically to Nickelback, you also have the similarities between its own hit singles. Not to mention, let's face it, that name, which rolls off the sneerer's tongue with a special kind of venomous Ease, And they uh, they had a link in that um, in that piece right there to a YouTube mashup, I guess is what you can call it, of somebody putting two songs on top of each other and like, hey, these songs sound exactly the same. Well, one of them was slowed down. The other one might have been sped up. I don't know, but at least one of them was slowed down to put them on top of each other. It was a bogus way to try to make a point. It, it, it's it's more infuriating uh behavior on the internet. Hey, check this out. I'm going to try to make a point by uh like by fraudulently presenting the uh the evidence if you will. Um most bands that are not rock and roll hall of famers. Most bands that don't have 20 year uh longevity uh, lives, they they sound pretty much the same. And that and and that's the same thing with Nickelback whether you think they're good or you think they're awful yeah they sound pretty much the same even speaking of rock and roll of famers R- Green Day take away their best songs you've ever heard or best ones that are well known that are unique and different in the punk rock uh, genre and take a majority of their songs stack them on top of each other they sound the damn same uh, let's think of some more uh, contemporary hard rock acts like Nickelback let's see like Seether you don't think Seether's music sounds the same how about uh, Theory of the Dead Man um, I'm just trying to think of some music that comes out of that Rossville Boulevard, if you know what I mean, kind of uh, class. And then you can go away from that. You get into things that I like. Widespread Panic has a ton of music that sounds the same. My big joke after I left Bonnaroo 19, you know, last month in June, that on Sunday watching the Lumineers, that was one hour of one song. Now, my you know kind of joke was the good news is is that one song is really good. Like, I really like that one song. But it was one hour of the same damn song over and over again. And that's okay. There's no reason to get overly pissed off about that. But this idea that Nickelback sucks and they're not, they're not any good. They're, no, they're, they're terrible. No, they're not. You don't sell 50 million records if you're not any good. You just know how to tap into your resources. And where they finally um, really did that. After a year, the overnight sensation after, you know, 20 years kind of thing was around the year. I'm only going on memory here. I think it was 2000 to 2001, and everybody in the world knew this song, and it became the biggest song in the world. Never
3: made it as a wise man. I couldn't cut it as a poor man stealing. Tired of living like a blind man. Sick
1: of without a sense of feeling. Those aren't bad lyrics I'm sick of sight without the sense of feeling I'm sick of sight without the sense of feeling Me of what I really am This is not a bad song It's just not And acting like it is is just being wrong Bending down and this is about when I started to check out from the band I'm not asking you or hoping that everybody comes around and starts being a big Nickelback fan That's not my point. It's just some kind of strange phenomenon That has happened especially in the internet digital age that making fun of and hating on Nickelback is something you're supposed to do like if you don't pile on if you don't get on board and hate Nickelback Then, you know, like you're a faggot too or something, right? Like you're the loser in the group. And I've just never understood that. Is a lot of it, you know, throwaway pop, trash, rock? Of course it is. Is some of it pretty good? A lot of it is. And this song was the biggest song in the world at the turn of the century. And the next time you know somebody who writes a song that is the biggest song in the history of the world at that time, well... Let me know because I'd like to hear all about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, having fun. Yeah. I messed that one up too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then evi- inevitably they turn into kind of a complete corporate rock shill. But why? who wouldn't? There's nobody listening to this, or nobody you know in your life who wouldn't do the same thing. To become stars, to make as much money as they can, so they shift their music writing to a more popped-out, really, um, at times, kind of gross-sounding, stupid lyrics, and 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 overall trying to identify with the lowest common denominator. Do I like that? Uh, no, I don't. Do I care all that much about it? Absolutely no, I do not. Um, I think that's about all I got for this week. I appreciate you guys listening to this mess. Uh, It is always fun for me to play with some audio and um, get to some things I really care about. Do I really care about Nickelback? No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. I've just been sitting on that one for a little while. Um, Yeah, and then songs like this came out. I want to be a big rock star. Yeah, this song sucks. I mean, no no doubt. No doubt. Um, Then there's Photograph. And there's all these other songs that are stupid. But for a while, in that transitional period of people of a certain age, they really weren't that bad. And it was a lot of fun in the summer times, listening to Nickelback on the back porch, getting drunk, drinking wine, drinking whiskey, drinking micro-brews, brah. Micro-brews. Yeah, you call them craft beers now. 20 years ago, we were drinking micro-brews. So whatever it is you want to do, you have fun. That guy over there. That guy over there that, over there. that girl over there. That gal. That woman. That person. Y'all have fun. Y'all do whatever you want to do. I don't care. But judging people on what they like to listen to and you know eat and drink is pretty stupid. But this song does suck. Rockstar, I want to be a big rockstar. So, yeah, did they start to to play to the fan base? Even if that fan base is mostly living off of Rossville Boulevard? (laughs) Yeah, they did. But hating Nickelback is, uh, just for the sake of it, is dumb. And really, if you want to look at it from a new age artist that's out right now, that's one of the biggest in the world. You guys listen to much of the Imagine Dragons? The Imagine Dragons, They are awful. And now I know I'm guilty of all the things I just said don't do. The Imagine Dragons are the new age Nickelback. But if you like them, good for you. I gotta go. Nickelback taking us out on the Stone on Air podcast for July 10th. 2019. Y'all have a good one. Talk to you next week. We'll stay we just won't eat it.
0: We'll hang out in the coolest bars in the be with the movie star.